Xavier, I'd be rich if I had a dollar every time I heard someone say, man, I wish I knew 20 years ago what I know today about money. They need to be teaching about this stuff in school. Like the power of investing early. Compound interest. That alone would impact lives. Understanding and planning for taxes. Understanding the difference between both good debt and bad debt. Eric, what about all the stuff about money that business owners need to know? What kind of insurance should you be buying? The importance of contributing towards your retirement. They don't teach any of this stuff in school. Y'all sit back, get ready, because we are talking stuff about money they didn't teach you in school that you need to know. Welcome back to the Stuff About Money podcast. I am certified financial planner, Eric Garcia, joined by Xavier Angel, certified financial planner. Xavier, how you doing, man? Good morning. I'm doing great. Um, we've got some great weather um, here has, in New Orleans. So It has been. Uh, despite a couple of, of, of bad days, we've had sunny days, you know, mild climate, mild temperatures. It's been absolutely, it's, absolutely beautiful. It's been so, crazy the past two and a half weeks with these severe thunderstorms, wild. but clear skies, low 80s today. So I'm and excited. And we are recording on April 6th, just for, for perspective, because this is not uh, <laughs> publishing today. So yeah, so I was thinking about this in, in light of the topic, and I'm going to get to that in a second. In light of our topic today, I was thinking about this. So if I walk outside and the sun's been shining for the most part for the past couple of weeks, but absolutely gorgeous. The sun's everywhere. It's, it's the, the light that the sun gives off, it's ubiquitous. I can't get away from it. I can try to go under a tree and I get in a little bit of shade. I can go behind a building and it's maybe, I can go inside of a building, but there's still sun kind of pouring through the windows. So I can't get away from the sun, right? So our topic today is risk. And risk is kind of like sunlight when the sun's out, of course, or even when, the, I mean, the sun's out always somewhere. It's everywhere. You can't get away from it. So we're going to talk about risk, but today's episode is actually going to be kind of kind of interesting. So, you know, stuff about money they didn't teach you in school. Our guest today happens to be a professor of financial planning, so he's technically teaching this stuff in school. So it's going to be, it's going to be interesting it's going to be an interesting show. So our guest today is Dr. John Grable. He is actually a certified financial planner and a professor of financial planning um, at, at the University of Georgia. And he runs, which is super intriguing, he runs their financial planning performance lab. Dr. Grable, welcome. Hello, and thanks for having me. This is fun. So, so tell us, give us a little bit about your, a little history about yourself. And tell us a little bit more about this lab, and then we're going to ask you the question that we ask all of our guests, and then we'll jump into our topic. Okay. Yeah. So as you mentioned, I'm at the University of Georgia, and prior to getting into the academic world, I was very similar to you, the two of you. I was a practicing financial planner, and uh, I just found that my day-to-day existence as an advisor. I really liked doing the analysis. I liked to do strategic thinking, the modeling. And I, I really was trying to figure out why my clients did strange things or things that an economist would say, that's not a rational behavior. And I encountered that a lot. And so when I had an opportunity to kind of transition from an advisory role into the academic world, I kind of jumped ship. And that's how I got into the academic side of things. And so at the University of Georgia, I do have a lab. And really what that means, it it probably sounds a little more mysterious than it really is. 
but I, I have some PhD students and we bring in people from the community, from the academic community, from the Athens community, and we kind of run tests on them to determine why are they making the kinds of decisions they are related to money. And so we do everything from straight surveys and interviews to brain scans and physiological measurements of clients. So that's what we do in our lab. So one of those, you know, and, and you mentioned test. Um, one of the tests that I heard was you guys may do um, gather information or ask a, a, a question from a client today and then come back three months from now to see if, if that question is the same or different. And that's how you guys are kind of putting together these 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 data points on on risk and, and how people manage that. Um, you know, tell me a little bit about that or but, you know, before we get to that, because um, I jumped the gun on you there. Tell us something um, that if you could go back 20 years ago, tell us something that about money that you wish you would have known back then. Oh, that really is a good question. Uh, I might expand my answer beyond just money, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, yeah, and, and that is that when I was in college, so I, I have an economics degree and wanted to do financial planning. That was from the moment I was 10 years old, I kind of knew that's what I wanted to do. And it, it just, I think the economics training and some of just being where I was at that time, I think there was this working assumption that there's a path to financial success. There's a way to do it. There's right and there's wrong. There's good and there's bad. And what I've learned over my career, particularly on the academic side, is that if I could go back and tell myself something 20, 25 years ago, it would, it would be that everyone's financial journey is different. It's distinct. There are no right Absolutely. or wrong answers that apply to everyone. Now, there are certainly behaviors that are probably problematic. Okay, maybe we shouldn't do that. But your life, your, your journey that you're doing, that you're on, is different than mine. And so the solutions, the strategies, the recommendations, how I even define success or failure is going to be different. And that's okay. And that would be my takeaway. It's okay. Your journey's different, and that's okay. That's good. You know, I, I think the, um, when, when we think, I, so I always have this this picture for my clients. If you're watching this on video, you can kind of see what I'm doing. But this is kind of the analogy that I, that I, I draw with all my clients or, or the picture that I give them, that there's a spectrum. So if you, if you think of like a, a starting and an end of possible financial solutions, okay? On either end of the spectrum are bad decisions, right? Like, like mm-hmm. the, you said, probably behaviors that need to be corrected. And a little closer in, there's a smaller spectrum that are all good decisions. Maybe I fall on one side and you fall on the other side, but they're within the spectrum of good decisions. And I think that's how I think that's what you just described there, that there's no right or wrong. Personal finance is, after all, personal. Yeah. It is unique to the individual. So I like that. There is no right or wrong. Financial planning is gray. It's art. It's not science. Right. So Dr. Grable, I was driving home last night um, after I left work. And, and I had an experience that I think many advisors go through. You know, I get this phone call and, and as I'm driving, the client is on the phone with me. You know, this is a client that uh, with, with 
initially when we came in and, and looked at their risk tolerance and, and their risk, um, they said that they were more of a balanced, a balanced, moderate uh, um, uh, investor. Now that the markets are up and down and we're, we're seeing um, some of these corrections in the market, they're, get, they're becoming terrified. And, and so their question was, I need to sell. I need to go to cash. You know, and, and I think I, I heard your conversation and, and we start talking about risk. So uh, let, let's talk, let's define what risk is and, and what risk tolerance is uh, first. Yeah, so that's the million dollar question, right? Um, so as an investor, as, as a, somebody who's just, you're not a professional investor, you're just out there trying to make your retirement. You can sort of think of risk as there, I mean, there's actually multiple ways to think of risk. You could think of risk as the volatility that you're seeing in the markets, right? Last year, the markets were tremendously good. This year, they're kind of a little more choppy in losses. Mm -hmm. That volatility is, in fact, the risk. Um, and so, you know, this, I, I know you guys don't want to hear this, but more the academic perspective. I think what your client is experiencing is not risk, they're experiencing uncertainty. And when, as a financial advisor in my lab, I'm much, much, much more interested in uncertainty than I am risk. Risk is something that I can attach a probability to. So if you think about, you were talking about the great weather in New Orleans. And um, I can attach a probability to the next tornado or the next hurricane coming through right. New Orleans. It's the uncertainty that's the problem, right? It's, is it going to hit my neighborhood? Is it going to hit 30 miles away? Is it going to Biloxi? Who knows, right? That's the uncertainty that creates the anxiety with the client. And right. so one of your jobs as a financial planner obviously is helping your clients deal with that uncertainty so if the client's feeling that way i think it's it's okay it's and it's basically just normal feelings that you know nobody likes to lose money in fact we we dislike losing money much more than we enjoy making money so if that client happens to be listening it's okay <laughs> Dr. Graber, I like what you I like what you said there about the difference between risk and uncertainty. Where risk is more, let's say, more scientific, yeah. if you will, yeah. or more statistical, and uncertainty tends to be a little bit more, I don't know, like squishy and feely. Like it's it, it deals more with my emotions and my behaviors. Yeah. And and I often say, and I had this conversation with another advisor in our group that investment management is easy. Like inv managing yeah. investments is, is it's easy, right? It's statistical. We could do that. We, we, we have years and years and years and years of history of what markets have done, okay, under different circumstances. But investor management is tricky. Investor management is super tricky because feelings are unpredictable. They're, they're terribly unreliable. So from an investment management standpoint, I can look backwards and look at historically and see what's been done. From an investor management standpoint, I'm having to forecast, if you will, how my client or how an investor is going to react to, I don't know, um, a war in the Ukraine, how they're going to react to COVID shutting everything down. How are they going to react when they want to make money? Then all of a sudden they see the stock market slowing down. That's the challenge. 
And, and that's what that's yeah. I think that's the challenge of the advisor. Yeah, and that's also the challenge that your clients are facing, right? So they're listening to this. They're thinking, man, I am feeling really nervous. I'm uncomfortable with the market environment. But every time I call in, they're telling me to hang in there. Is that the right thing to do? So there's the second guessing. And is my advisor really on top of it, right? So there's all of these questions. And... Let me go back a little bit here and just give you some more definitions or my, my definitional framework. Yeah. If, you, if you think about think about somebody, so let me just pick on myself here because I'm an easy target. I actually have three things going through my mind when I make an investment or when I'm managing my portfolio or even thinking about my portfolio. The first is my risk tolerance which is my willingness to take risk, okay? And that's if for your clients, that's the questionnaire that they filled out when they first came to see you. They filled out a risk tolerance quiz or a questionnaire or a test. And what you were doing with that is assessing their willingness to take risk, okay? So so would you say, would you say tolerance also is like my willingness to stomach risk, like what keeps me up at night? Yeah, what's that maximum level of loss that I'm going to be comfortable with? What What's that threshold when I'm just like, do call you and I say, enough is enough, I'm out of here. I can't take, I can't it. take it. That's gotcha. what your risk tolerance is. That's really your willingness. And we, we, we kind of know that your willingness is more of a trait-like factor. It's actually pretty fixed. It does not change a lot. And you, and you know this because you have a, a tolerance for risk across your life in multiple domains. I mean, the two of you live in Hurricane Alley, right? You live in New Orleans. You're working in New Orleans. I look at New Orleans and I go, man, that looks like a pretty risky place to live. Who would live there? The weather's nice and it's, it's great food, but you get wiped out by hurricanes. You two obviously see the same situation, but view it differently. You're willing to live now, there, right? Right. Now, you talked about risk tolerance across different domains. Would you say that, is it accurate to say someone who is okay with, with mm. have a high risk tolerance for the market, they're also the people who want to go jump out of an airplane and go spelunking and cave diving? So that's a great question. And so the answer is no, actually. There is, there is a generalized risk tolerance. So if, you, if you're a big investor, you, it's likely that you're at the Harrah's there in downtown uh, New Orleans mm -hmm. every once in a while. And you probably are more likely to take some driving risk or other kinds of risk, but it's not universal. And so my example here is years ago, I don't know if you guys remember who Larry Holmes, does that name ring a bell? No. Okay. So Vainly. Larry Vainly. Holmes was the heavyweight champion of the world back in the 70s and 80s. He, yes. he beat Muhammad okay. Ali. So, okay. And he his quote has always resonated with me. He said, when it comes to risk, when he enters the ring, he knows he can die. So he's willing to take a risk with his body, with his mind, with his physiolo physiology. But when it comes to his money, he takes no risk, right? So you would assume the heavyweight champion of the world would have risk tolerance that's high across the board. In fact, 
No, it, it, it's domain specific, but there's a generalized risk tolerance. But gotcha. Okay. Because you guys would jump out of an airplane, no way does that mean that you also want to invest in 100% cryptocurrency. So don't make yeah. that mistake. And particularly if you're a client, don't think that just because you do downhill ski or bungee jump or jump out of an airplane that you automatically should also be an aggressive investor. No. So that yeah. that's something I would so, avoid. So, so that's risk tolerance. That's that's our willingness to take risk. Right. And I would say this, that is, to me, mm -hmm. a very small piece to the puzzle of what type of profile yeah. an investor should have. Yeah. So it's one element, mm -hmm. right? Okay. So let's, let's okay. look at me. So we're still talking about me here. I also have a preference, right? I have a risk preference. I prefer, if you ask me, and that's you are asking me, I actually have a preference not to take any risk. If I could stick my money in the bank and make 10% like I could in 1990, hmm. I'd be out of the stock market entirely, right? <laughs> I'd go- Me too, I, I would as well. And, and in fact, in back in 1989, when I got married, the Bank of New England was paying 10% on a bank account, oh, not even a CD. So yeah, I would prefer to do that. So that's my, my preference. And why do I prefer to do that? Because I perceive the stock market is actually risky. There's volatility and I don't really like volatility. However, I perceive the markets as risky. I prefer not to be in the markets if possible. However, reality is if I want to accomplish my dreams, I must be willing to take that risk. So it's sort of, and you just alluded to it, Eric, it's you have a risk profile, not just a tolerance for risk. You have a profile. And that's something that the clients need to understand, that they're bringing to the world of investing and financial planning preferences, perceptions, willingness. They're also bringing capacity or capability to take risk. And think of it this way. You might have the highest risk tolerance ever, willingness to take risk, and you want to risk, but you have a three-year time horizon. It's, you don't have enough time to recoup a loss. So we would say your capacity to take risk is actually low. However, if all the picture lines up, high preference, perceptions, tolerance, capacity, the world is open to you in terms of investment opportunities. And, and so, and I'll stop here in a second, but the value, this is good. Keep going. the value of financial planning, the, what you, the two of you are offering that cannot be done by a robo-advisor or through the internet or the electronically, is that you have the skills and abilities and the training to bring all of those elements of a client's profile together when you're making a recommendation. It's not tied to a simple number or a simple entry point. You're, you're building a profile. And that's the value, in my opinion, of what a good financial planner adds to the life of their client. I think part of the capacity conversation, this is what's really important to me. I always tell clients, if, if we can attach a purpose to your money or to a, a, a bucket of money, it makes the investment decision a lot easier. And I think that's the capacity question. Mm -hmm. So I got a lot of clients who are entrepreneurs, they're business owners. 
There, entrepreneurs tend to be risk takers in general with with their money, and a lot of the conversation sometimes is, "Hey, maybe we should take a pot of money and put it to a side." And even though you have a high willingness to take risk, maybe we should assign a different purpose yeah. to this money because everything else you have out there is in some type of private placement or it's in your 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 personal business, which. Personal businesses, small businesses tend to be higher risk. We understand them, so we're, we're a little bit more comfortable with that risk. But um, so part of that capacity to me is attaching purpose. And then also along with that is is that need for risk. How much risk do I need to take? Do I need to, to risk it to earn a potential 20% return? Or, hey, you know what? Can I, can I maybe... You know, am I am I going to be able to reach my goal with a eight uh, percent return? Yeah. And there's also a little flip side to that as well. So you're you're dealing with a lot of business owners. Their life is really very similar to a stock. Mm-hmm. Look at me yep. on the opposite side. I'm I'm a university faculty member. I'm actually I le- I'm very much a bond. I mean. <laughs> If you classify people as stocks or bonds, I'm very much a bond. I have a set dividend or a set uh, interest payment that I receive every month from the state of Georgia. That's steady. It's steady. It, it goes up very, very slowly, if ever, but it's very steady. It's very guaranteed. It's rock solid. And so if you're if you're my advisor, you're you're again looking at my profile and saying, man. Grable, you have a you you have a bond-like stream of income. In that other pool of money, what you were just talking about, you could actually probably take more risk than you're willing to take or or think that you want to take. Why? Because you have the stability of this bond. That business owner, they they might be lacking that stability of the bond that I have. So maybe they need to pull some of those assets down a little bit even though they want to take that risk to create more of a balanced or diversified portfolio in their life. And to that point, I think oftentimes advisors are too narrow when they're looking at a pot of money. Like, oh, you have 100,000 or you have a quarter million dollars from an old 401k, let's roll it over, let's take risk. Well, in light of everything else, like that quarter million could be a drop in the bucket. It could be 100% of their investable assets. So how much cash do they have on the side? Like you said, um, do they have, do they have access to other capital if they need it? All that goes into building out that um, that risk profile for sure. Think that I mean I think it was very helpful to think of the you know risk perception, risk capacity, risk tolerance because I think a big part for investors for all of our listeners, most of our listeners are investing in the stock market. I think part of it is just becoming aware of how you interact with risk, yeah. right? So like. I think we said it earlier in the conversation. A couple of years ago, it's still going on. I would get all these spam calls to my to my phone, and I'd answer it. And the first thing would be a computer that said, "Do not hang up." <laughs> the first thing I did was hang up. I remember at the beginning of COVID, March 2020, I was getting all kinds of emails from all these investment firms, and the the advice was, "Don't panic, don't worry," that kind of stuff. And I'm like. You telling me not to not to panic, not to worry. It's like telling me not to hang up my phone. You all of a sudden triggered me. And I think too often advisors, we give that we give that advice. Hey, don't worry. Don't worry. It's gonna be okay. The market's gonna come back. And I think that we have to acknowledge the fact that, yeah, yeah, this is I mean, risk is real. We need to take risk. And yeah, 
when the market goes crazy, I get a little nervous. I look at it and say, oh my God, oh my God. And then I, and then I have to take a step back and put my emotions to a side and, and make, make rational decisions. But um, becoming aware of risk and how to manage yeah. it, I think is, is what leads some people to being successful versus Xavier, your earlier story about your client. Oh my gosh, I'm nervous today. Take my money out of cash. And I always tell my clients, okay, we go to cash. When do you want me to get back in the market? Right. Ooh, and it, and it's mean? more, you know, asking those questions of that client, you know, and, and going back and looking at what is your capacity? What is your tolerance? And bringing all of that together right. and having a, and sitting down and having a conversation with them so that they can take that step back and look at, okay, here's where we are. But and, and Dr. Graber, I'd like to hear your feedback on this. My problem with a lot of the, the traditional risk questionnaires, risk profiling questionnaires that we have like I, I read some of these questions and I understand them because I've, I've been in the financial space for 20 years. But I look at some of these questions, I'm like, how in the world is my client who who can barely spell stock and <laughs> obviously being facetious here, how are they going to answer that question? Because it implies that they have a, a, a knowledge and education or some understanding of the stock market. How can they possibly answer that question properly? Yeah, you, you, you made a really good point there. And that is that... Um, the client is going to answer when they're faced with that situation, a questionnaire that just is confusing. They're not, they're, they're probably not going to tell you that they're confused. They're going to guess, or this is what we found in the lab. They answer the way they think you want them to answer, <laughs> which is exactly not what you want them to do. Right? So this is one of the things we found early on in our lab work is that sometimes if the questions are too complex or they require a lot of probability work, the client will overestimate or tell you they're willing to take much more risk than they really are. And that leads to really problematic outcomes, right? So I, I invest you believing that you are a risk taker, the markets collapse, and turns out you really weren't and now you're panicked and the whole situation Anatomy. is bad. So from a client perspective, if you're watching this before meeting this team, just tell them the truth. Answer honestly. There's no right or wrong or good or bad. If you have a really low risk tolerance, who cares? It's fine. It's not a bad thing. It's not a stain on your reputation. If you have a really high risk tolerance, tell them. Be honest. Don't try to hide or think that there's a good or something bad or that you should have a particular level of risk tolerance. And, uh, you know, this this question is where I was going to earlier in, in our conversation when I was saying about asking them what we asked them today versus what we asked them three, six, nine, 12 months from now is going to be different. And I, and, and I believe that as they become more comfortable with us as their advisor, as their planner, they're opening up and now they're answering those questions more uh, to where they they feel not what we think they should. Um, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, I, I try to go back and, and have that conversation at a later date. You know, let's reevaluate where your tolerance is, um, you know, um, and, and see if those questions are, are, are the same or if they're different. Yeah. I mean, that's a from a practice management perspective, that's a great way to go. I think this market environment in which we're living right now is a good example of, I probably can know your risk tolerance pretty well, but what I need to be doing, and, and as a client, 
really when they're calling you, they're, they're really stating their preference, their perceptions of the market. They're, they're really not necessarily telling you that their willingness has changed. It's that they're perceiving the markets as being more risky today, right? But mm-hmm. that's, that's their concern typically. And so it's managing the preferences, the perceptions, and it's, it's a challenge. And so we always tell clients, hang in there, don't make any rash decisions. And it's much easier said than done. So this is one of the things that I appreciate about the profession of financial planning. You know, as when I got my certified financial planner designation, my eyes were opened up in terms of how I make investment decisions. Mm-hmm. And for me to be able to make good as an advisor, to make a confident recommendation to you in a portfolio, mm-hmm. it helps me understand your entire financial picture. Yeah. So that when the market does turn and you get a little less willing to take, or, or not your willingness, but you, you become a little bit more uh, uh, apprehensive, maybe? nervous or scared or anxious, yeah. right? And you call me and I can say, hey, Dr. Grable, yeah, look, the market's down right now. The portfolio is down right now. You know, we, we know this, that this this happens in the market from time to time. This is not This is not new news. Let me tell you the good news. The good news is that this money, we earmarked it for 10 years from now. So we don't need it today. Right. And not only that, Dr. Grable, we have 80% of your income, of your future income, we already have that planned for in some other sources between yeah. this account, Social Security, this pension, and really this account here, it could literally drop by 50% and you're still going to have enough for retirement. So putting it in perspective, mm-hmm. and so from a professional standpoint, yeah. to be able to know a client's full picture and me be able to say, you know, Clients don't, I don't expect my client to necessarily understand their risk profile. No. I mean, they hire me to do that. I, they under, mm-hmm. They hire me to make that recommendation to them. So it's incumbent upon me mm-hmm. to try to understand them as much as possible, understand their future expenses. You know, do they have, do they have kids? Are they entrepreneurial? Do they want to start a business? Are they looking to buy a house? Um, is their income bond-like? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, are, is their income variable? Because if it's a variable, then that's going to change my you know, I'm going to start to look at from a capacity standpoint, if you have a variable income, I'm going to make sure that you have more money set aside in something more, quote unquote, air quotes here, conservative, maybe like a savings account, your emergency fund should be higher. Um, if you have bond-like income, well, maybe your your savings account doesn't have to be as large. You could take more risk. Yeah. And that's what makes financial planning a truly value-added benefit to individuals and households is that rather than just looking at a portfolio and creating an allocation, you, the two of you, you are looking at the entire situation and you're adding value not only in the portfolio, but across the client's financial life. And that's, that's very hard to actually measure. I mean, it, you can't, it's hard to put a percentage on that, but the value is totally there. And that's my performance lab, that's the name of my lab. It's that you really are, as financial planners, adding value. You're adding performance to the client's overall portfolio, which includes their investments, their home, their second home, their small business, their retirement mm-hmm. education, everything. And that's that's the unique aspect of financial planning. What, what do you say about, um, and I'm sure you've, you have some similar type of 
of research coming out of the lab. But you know, I think maybe 10, it was a while ago, many years ago, Vanguard came out with the Advisor mm-hmm. Alpha. Basically what Vanguard said that one in a, that investors who work with advisors tend to one and a half percent to out tend to earn one and a half percent better strictly due to behaviors is that some, do you find that in, yeah, in your that lab was a, that was definitely true and we did a follow-up study that was published in the journal of financial planning five six years ago what we also found is that clients who work with financial planners their volatility of their wealth, so not just their portfolio, but of their overall net worth, what you're worth, your value, is much less volatile than somebody who works independently or makes their own decisions. Mm. So the value that you're adding is not just in performance, but it's in reducing that volatility that scares people anyway. Yeah. Interesting. All right. I think I read this on your website or one of one of your papers. I can't remember. I copied it and I pasted it, and it's it's a fascinating it's a fascinating uh, concept. Disappointment dilemma hypothesis. Is that did I read that from one of your papers? You did read that. Yes. This is fascinating to me because I find this is kind of Xavier's dilemma that he explained earlier with his client. Right. That this is the client who they they're either maybe driven by fear or greed when they're making investment decisions. I want. Um, and tell me if I'm contextualizing this mm-hmm. properly. They want to make money in the market. They don't want to lose money in the market. But then, when the opposite's not happening, you know, they're, they're basically they're making these these decisions based off of this emotion short term. But they're setting themselves up for some type of long term disappointment. Unpack that for us. This disappointment dilemma hypothesis and how that relates to investors. Okay, so it, it's you you actually did a great job of summarizing it. So everybody who's listening to this, you've heard this. Your, your mom, your grandma, some radio host, somebody said, one way to make sure you don't get disappointed is to do what? Do you guys know what you're supposed to do? Nothing. Well, <laughs> hopefully your mom didn't say this, but <laughs> set your lex- expectations low. Low. Right? Reduce right. those expectations. If you don't have high expectations, you won't be disappointed, right? Yeah. So... When people actually do that, they follow that advice. So some radio host said, reduce your expectations because you're, you're, you're trying to avoid disappointment. So you reduce the expectations, you invest very conservatively. Why? Because you don't want to, you don't want to experience loss. You don't want to, you don't, that just makes you feel really nervous. So in the short run, yes, you, you don't have any disappointment, but in the long run, guess what? You're working until 82. <laughs> your kids aren't going to college. There is no super vacation at your 50th wedding anniversary. Why? Because you you took so much effort avoiding disappointment that you set up negative outcomes in the future. So that's the dilemma. We all want to avoid disappointment, but avoiding or setting too low of expectations turns out to be a bad thing. That's you know, I'll be, I'll be, um, I'll be super transparent here. I had, um, I don't lose many clients, especially in the investment space. Right. I lost one client during COVID. Okay. During, during all, during all the market downturn, I lost one client and this was the situation. It was disappointment dilemma hypothesis. Okay. I perceived, and I think I, I still stand by the portfolio I recommended for the client. They didn't need to take a lot of risk. The portfolio that they were in was fantastic. It was a great performing mm-hmm. portfolio. 
But when the market started recovering coming out of out of um, out of the downturn, uh, they were wondering why they were underperforming <laughs> the market. And no amount of explanation yes. satisfied them that we, we didn't lose this. Like, let's let's look at the entire picture. You know, you can't judge an advisor or, an, or portfolio based off of one single small yeah. market cycle, particularly something as, as dramatic as what we saw in March of 2020 and then, you know, then following. And their complaint was they weren't getting enough return. But on the front end of the relationship, they didn't want to lose money. Yeah. So, so on one hand, I saved mm -hmm. them from losing a lot of money. Yeah. But yet they weren't satisfied that they weren't making enough money on the upswing. And that's the one client that I lost during COVID during, during that during that market cycle. So if you if as an academic, somebody in my lab, I would tell you that's probably a good client to lose because you're you're never gonna be able to satisfy them. They're they're dealing with fear and they're dealing with greed. And those are the two things that are driving that mm -hmm. person. I really, it's, but I, as a researcher, I would love to see what did they do from January 1st through today? You know, that's what I, I, I wake up at night. I don't really wake up in the middle of the night, but I often have yeah. thought. So like whenever I lose a client, I sit there and I'm like, I, I, I'm all over like, what, what did I do wrong? Did I do something wrong? And I've, I've come to the same conclusion that you've concluded. You know what? That's probably a client that I don't need that I can't satisfy, but man, I'd love to see what their portfolio is doing right now. <laughs> because they were awfully greedy. You didn't get them 24% rate of return last year you only you only got them 18 so i'm gonna fire you it, it, look, <laughs> like, and a lot of that goes to who are they getting their financial advice yeah. from you yeah. know yeah. Or, or are they getting it from outside sources no. we did a whole show on that xavier who are you who we, are you taking your financial cues mm -hmm. from right because everyone is different their paths are different to success and if you have long-term perspective dr grable and i have a short-term perspective yeah. and i'm telling you what you should do with your investments from my perspective we got a problem yeah, absolutely yeah that's a next door neighbor coming in and saying, "Oh, I'm getting 25%." So. Exactly. Or yeah, like, man, I I I bought a second house with my crypto investment. Yeah, well, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. So, and you know, okay, but I don't want to lose money. So, all right, true true story. You you'll appreciate this. We're talking about the risks involved in living in Southeast Louisiana. Mm -hmm. Uh BP oil spill happens. Remember that? Yeah. 10 I don't know how long. Mm -hmm. It was a long time ago. And um, a lot of a lot of these uh, commercial fishermen in Southeast Louisiana, I got these these big settlements, okay? So I had a relationship with the CPA and he called me up and said, hey, I have a couple of these fishermen who have some money to invest. So he sends one guy over, we're sitting across from the table, he had $100,000 to invest. And he goes, I don't wanna lose my money. I said, okay. He goes, I'm afraid of the market. I said, I said, okay, well, you understand I'm a financial advisor, that's the, the investments that we're gonna do. He's like, yeah, but I don't wanna lose money. So I said, okay. So I asked him a little bit about it, and he perceived the market to be mm -hmm. very risky. Yeah. I said, "Okay." I said, "I'll tell you what. Let's let's hypothetically speaking, I have two investments that you can make. Mm -hmm. One is in the S and P five hundred, and I explained to him what that was. It's the you know how we track the stock market, and the other is in a brand new startup commercial fishing operation in Southeast Louisiana. <laughs> Which one do you want to invest in?" He didn't even bat an eye, and it was commercial fishing operation. I said, "Okay, cool." Cool. I had a feeling you'd say that. Now, tell me what are the what are the risks involved mm -hmm. that could that could prevent you from having success? What do you mean? I said maybe an oil spill would that impact your ability to make money or or, or the viability of your company? Oh yeah yeah. I said what about hurricane? You know, hurricane blows through, then you know the fish go to I don't know Texas and spawn there, and then our you know we don't have we don't have as many fish. Oh, yeah, that, that could be a problem. I said I figured you'd say that. 
you understand commercial fishing. It's a risk that you're more comfortable with. You're willing to take that risk. The S&P 500, on the other hand, is much more stable, even though you perceive it to be riskier. And I think that's a that's just a really good um, and kind of come in full circle where I think that our listeners and investors I think it's important to become aware of risk. Risk is everywhere, right? It's ubiquitous. Yeah. We avoid one risk and we just introduce a different one into our, yeah. into our, our portfolio, into our money lives. And I think that's the challenge that we have as, as advisors. And that seems to be the work that you're doing mm-hmm. in your lab. Yeah, and, and just to confirm what your story was saying, and this, and this goes back to that client who called, called you up as you were driving home. As they gain more experience, more knowledge, more what we would just call financial literacy, their risk tolerance, their comfort level with the markets will increase. It's not going to be three months. It could take a year or two or 10 years. But we do see a definite positive relationship between knowledge and experience. And just like your, mm-hmm. your commercial fisher person there is that they're, they know fishing, so that's they don't consider it risky. I don't know fishing. It only seems like the riskiest thing you could possibly do. So different perceptions, different risk perception, um, different behaviors, right? So mm-hmm. right. just tell your clients, and if they're listening to this, hang in there. Do not panic. I know that, that you hear that all the time, but mm-hmm. – and then I'm, I'm – probably just leave you with this, but I, in 2008, if you live, if you were alive in 2008, 2009, Mm -hmm. you lived through possibly the worst market you will ever see in your life. If you live to be 110, you'll never see a market like that ever in your life again. Did the world end? No. Did people lose everything? No. In fact, if you held from 2008 to today, you were very, very, very happy that you did. So mm-hmm. if nothing yeah. else, if you if you were alive then, the world didn't end, I thought it was going to end myself. I thought maybe our economic system is going to collapse. And so I even moved to cash. Dumbest thing I ever did. Should have just stuck it out, quit watching the news, turn mm-hmm. that off and just keep going. And if you and I, I just cannot imagine that we will ever get in a situation worse than 2008. Yeah, we just um, one of our more recent episodes. It was actually a replay from an older ex- episode. It's how to plan for the next recession, yeah. and we talk about some of the things that, that people need to do financially to prepare themselves for you know that 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 yeah. potentially it'll happen. Yeah. Not, maybe not to the extent of 2008, but how do we set our finances up yeah. for that? Awesome, Xavier. You have any uh, closing thoughts or any closing questions here? This, this was a great show. Um, you know, I enjoyed having you on here, um, you know, speaking to our clients and just reiterating what Eric and I have been telling them. Um, you know, I think one of the things that uh, we're going to be reaching out to, to you know, our clients and, and um, is looking at the risk tolerance um, and where they are and, and having those conversations with people. So definitely appreciate you coming on today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Yeah. It was fun. Awesome. Thanks for, yeah, everyone, thanks for taking time to listen. If you like what you're hearing, go follow us. You can find us on any of your favorite podcast apps from Apple to Google to Spotify. You can find us at stuffaboutmoney.com. Also, if you're interested in how you would react and or how you do react and think about the market during crazy movements, go to, and we'll put the link in the show notes, plan-wisely.com forward slash 
Market Mindset. This is actually a, a little quiz. It's a resource. It's actually the resource that connected John Grable, um, Dr. Grable, and I through uh, through Data Point. So it's um, stuff. It's uh, plan-wisely.com forward slash market mindset. Little eight question quiz to see how you how you think about uh, money in the market. So y'all, thanks for listening, Dr. Grable. We appreciate you. Thanks. Information presented and discussed on the Stuff About Money podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute direct financial advice. Consult with a qualified financial advisor prior to implementing any strategies discussed. Eric Garcia and Xavier Angel's branch office is located in New Orleans, Louisiana. The branch phone number is 504-218-5479. Securities offered through Royal Alliance Associates Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC. Advisory services offered through New Century Financial Group, LLC, a registered investment advisor not affiliated with Royal Alliance Associates Incorporated. 